From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's mounting evidence that COVID-19 lingers in the air. Today, a leading chemist explains the science and ways to keep safe. We have not been defending ourselves very smartly because we didn't understand how the transmission happens. Then, as restaurants shutter left and right, we'll crack open a cookbook from the early 80s in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. You know, there's 71 Denver restaurants listed in this book, and 10 of them are still around. A walk down culinary memory lane and what it means when a beloved hangout closes for good. Plus, an outpouring for a black business owner in Denver. Cobbler Tommy Rhine now has shoes to repair and money in his pocket. I would say it's close to 20 grand. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Several communities have imposed mask orders stricter than the governor's mandate. The state requires masks in indoor public spaces or when people are using transit. But Jefferson County, for instance, requires masks outdoors when distancing isn't possible. What does this say about how the novel coronavirus is transmitted? Well, Jose Luis Jimenez is a chemistry professor at CU Boulder, and he has studied aerosols for more than two decades. Aerosols, that's a kind of fancy term for suspended particles. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Early in the pandemic, the CDC and the WHO, for that matter, identified two types of transmission, inhaling droplets that someone coughed or sneezed at you, or touching a surface that's contaminated and then touching your face. But last month, you were among dozens of scientists arguing that there's a third way. Will you explain that for us? So many of us have suspected that there is a third way of transmission, which is through these small aerosol particles. What are these? Well, it is known that when we breathe, especially when we talk or sing, there is particles coming out of us that are what we call respiratory particles or respiratory aerosols. What are they made of? They are basically made of of saliva or respiratory fluid, which is basically the fluid that lines your trachea and your lungs. Okay. And if a person is infected, they can contain some virus. And then if another person inhales these particles, then they can be infected that way. And what this means is that these sorts of particles that you describe could be hanging around in the air for some time. In other words, it's not just a question of being coughed on. Yes, they could be hanging around in the air for some time, and that time is not very well known, but maybe half an hour, maybe an hour. And especially in indoor spaces with low ventilation. So there are some other diseases that are known to transmit through the air, like measles. Measles is much, much more contagious through the air than COVID-19 is. Mm. So And this leads to some confusion. With measles, someone can be in a room, that's infected, then you come in three hours later and you breathe that air and then you get infected that way because it's so contagious. COVID-19 is not that contagious. We need to help it along, like by going to a bar where people are shouting because the music is loud and we spend there a long time and there's low ventilation. And then that's the cocktail of circumstances that leads to efficient aerosol transmission. A cocktail of circumstances. Uh, So you note that this is especially true indoors and when there's not proper ventilation. So I I just want to paint a few scenarios. If if someone is out walking, if someone is out biking, could they 
potentially walk into a cloud of someone's aerosol leavings? Yeah, I mean, the analogy we use is cigarette smoke. So basically, cigarette smoke is an aerosol, right? People who smoke exhale it, and it doesn't fall to the ground like these droplets the WHO talks about, but it floats in the air and gets dissipated. If you are talking to someone indoors very closely, and they are just breathing normally, who's smoking, then, then you will inhale a lot of smoke. If you are in the same room, but you are not close to them, there will be less smoke, but with time it will build up. Outdoors is more difficult because it's windier and also the UV light um, inactivates the virus. But it is possible to get the disease outdoors. It's just much more difficult. When I hear you say this, I think not just twice, but three or four times now about whether I should eat indoors at a restaurant. You know, so many people have focused on wiping down surfaces, keeping tables clean, uh, etc., but when I think about the fact that there's turnover in a space, I know that there may be ventilation, but that makes me think indoor activities are riskier. What, how, how does this influence your own decision-making? Oh, de- definitely. I mean, there, there is no question that what you said is correct. I mean, we know for this disease, a lot of the spread happens to these super-spreading situations. So there is different estimates, but some scientists estimate that 10% of the people who have the disease will infect 80% of the next generation of infected. And a lot of people who have the disease don't give the disease to anyone, right? And when you study when, what causes these super spreading events, like we've written a paper on this choir event in Washington, but basically a lot of the events are the same thing. Indoor places with low ventilation, with a long time, with a lot of people, where people were talking or shouting or singing, you know, these are the characteristics that lead to transmission. If you think about an indoor restaurant, it depends. It's not that it is always unsafe, whatever, but you would want to go to a restaurant where there aren't a lot of people, where they they have good ventilation. Maybe they have installed some of these HEPA filter air cleaners. But honestly, I don't go to indoor restaurants. If I go, I would go to an outdoor restaurant when, where there is more air circulation and where I can keep a certain distance from other tables. I want to ask you about that choir in just a moment, but what's the difference between droplets, that's a term we've all become familiar with, and aerosols? Is, is it that droplets just kind of fall to the ground and aerosols remain suspended? Basically, that's the, the definition of droplets and aerosols. Now, I have to say, not all the scientists and not everyone uses those terms consistently, but those are the most accepted terms. So if you go to the WHO webpage, they have a video with basically they have these droplets that they think transmit the disease and they come out of the mouth of a person when the person is talking and then they can land on the person in front of them if the person is very close and then when you do this social distance then they fall to the ground, right? So those are the droplets. The aerosols come out at the same time. They're just smaller, but they're still big enough to contain a lot of viruses and then they linger in the air because they are smaller gravity cannot pull them to the ground very fast, and and they may linger in the air 10 minutes, an hour, a couple of hours, that kind of thing. Is this a particularly effective way, and when I say effective, I guess meaning from the virus's standpoint, is this a particularly effective way, aerosols, of transmitting the virus? I mean, compare it to droplet transmission or like surface transmission. We think so, and in fact, I think that it is the main way through which the, this disease is transmitted. We have more evidence in favor of aerosol transmission than the other routes. 
for this surface or what they call fomite transmission, the WHO has admitted they do not have any direct evidence that COVID-19 is transmitted through fomites. The evidence they have is that there are similar viruses that are transmitted through fomites, but they don't have evidence for COVID-19. I have to say for aerosols, we also have evidence for similar viruses that they are transmitted through aerosols, but somehow WHO considers that evidence valid for fomites, but not for aerosols. Fomite is just a fancy word for materials that transmit infection. Um, so you, you, that could be, gosh, clothes or furniture or utensils. For the large droplets, it is not only that COVID-19 has not been shown in any direct study. There's no direct evidence that COVID-19 is transmitted through the large droplets. Is that in the history of medicine, there is not a single disease that has been shown to directly be transmitted through droplets. So the world is backwards and the recommendations are backwards. The evidence favors aerosols and the recommendations insist in this fomite and droplet transmission that, that are probably dangerous and we should defend against them and we should keep washing our hands and all that. But we actually have less evidence and they're probably less important than aerosols. And so does our preoccupation with wiping down surfaces, you know, all of our Lysol wipes and all that kind of thing, is that misplaced, do you think? Mm, somewhat. I mean, I think we should keep disinfecting, you know, the argument that similar viruses transmit that way is a good one. I just want to say there's no direct evidence, but that's a good argument. And we should keep this washing our hands and disinfecting surfaces. But we should put at least as much emphasis on thinking about the air, basically thinking that when you go in public spaces, imagine everybody's smoking and you don't want to smell smoke. Mm. And what do you do? You keep your distance, you go for shorter times, you... Maybe you use some of these HEPA air cleaners or, or increased ventilation. There are many things that you can do that are not exactly the same as what we do for the other routes. This seems like a very important message right now for schools as they think about how to return to the classroom. Do you think that's true? Yes, yes. No, and I have a six-year-old and we've been talking to the people in charge of, of the school and, and it seems clear that it is very unclear to the people in charge of the schools what's going on and what they should do and especially this aerosol route, that's that's one reason why we're urgently trying to get the message out. Let's talk about that choir. What did you find about that choir? That choir was happened um, in Washington State, and there was an article in the Los Angeles Times. You know, I, I read it, and immediately I contacted the journalist, who, you know, he told me what he knew, and put me in touch with a contact person of the choir. And we also contacted the public health department. But especially the choir was especially helpful, and they provided an extensive amount of information. We've sent several questionnaires and then they will consult with a lot of the choir members. Briefly, it was a, a two and a half hour rehearsal. And basically people arrived and they say, you know, this was about the music. It was not very social. And they mostly were singing in fixed positions. There was one person that later was known that uh, was infected. This person was sitting in a location that the droplets wouldn't be falling on anyone, right? And then that person didn't touch most of the things. There were snacks and there mm. were chairs, but that person didn't touch those things. So then you are left with a situation which then 53 people get infected and this surface transmission or large droplet transmission is very, very unlikely. There was one break of 15 minutes, but we are told by the choir members that the index case was not talking to anyone during that time. And in any case, the CDC says that you need about 15 minutes of talking with someone to get infected. So now how do you get 15 minutes 
with each person with of 53 in 15 minutes. It's absurd, right? So basically, it's clear that the only way the transmission could have happened is through the air, through these aerosols. And this is not an isolated case. There is nine other cases, at least in the Netherlands, in Austria, in Spain, in France, in Canada, where there have been very similar events in choirs. Does this mean that indoors we should distance more than six feet? Six feet is a good rule of thumb for this close proximity situation, right? I think for indoors, the better rule is don't go indoors if you don't have to, or spend the least time that you can spend there, always wear a mask. And it's very important that the mask is well fit, that it doesn't have gaps. You cannot put a finger around the mask anywhere, otherwise the air will go through there. And actually, the most important thing is that whoever is talking is the person that needs to wear a mask. You see even Anthony Fauci, he goes to talk to Congress and then he, he wears the mask and then he removes the mask to talk. That's really bad. We should set an example. Whoever is talking is the person who is putting in the air 10 times or 20 times more respiratory particles. That's the person for whom the mask is really, really important. Professor, I wonder if we might just take a moment to run through the kind of psychological effect of your findings. We're all getting used to living in a pandemic. It seems that we have just gotten comfortable with life cleaning surfaces and imagining how this disease spreads. And then you bring this new information and it can feel really daunting. How, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, the thing to know is that the disease is not extremely contagious. People hear it goes through the air and they think it's like a ghost that someone is going to breathe a mile away and the air is going to find it. That doesn't happen. Hmm. There is many situations in which people are living in the same household with someone who's infected and they don't know. And maybe only 20 or 30 percent get infected, you know. So it's not really, really easy to get the disease. You kind of have to help it along. So we think it's very manageable. It's just we have not been defending ourselves very smartly because we didn't understand well how the transmission happens. So we should keep uh, using masks. We should keep the social distance. Uh, we should keep disinfecting surfaces, washing our hands. But what we have to keep in mind to defend ourselves more efficiently is that we have to avoid or reduce as much as possible six things. Indoor locations, especially if they are crowded, especially if there is low ventilation, meaning low replacement with outdoor air, especially if it's a long duration, especially if there is talking or especially loud talking or singing, and if some people are not wearing masks. Each one of these six things increases the chance of transmission. And if you, if you remove some of those check marks or, or reduce the intensity, so you, have a, you shorten the duration by half, or you have half as many people, or you double the ventilation, all of these things help reduce the chance of transmission. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Jose Luis Jimenez is an aerosols expert and professor of chemistry at CU Boulder. We talked about COVID-19 lingering in the air and ways to keep yourself healthy. As classrooms start to reopen during the pandemic, COVID-19 isn't the only thing that worries some Greeley parents. Their kids will return to a school that's less than two blocks away from an active oil and gas pad. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. 
After a few years away, Patricia Nelson moved back to Greeley with her young son, Diego. She wants him to grow up the way she did, in the open spaces of Weld County. It's one of the top oil and gas-producing counties in the country, but the tall tanks and rigs that dot the landscape didn't mean much to Nelson. I would see, you would see all the infrastructure, but I didn't really know what it was. Then in 2017, she was shocked to learn that multiple oil and gas wells will be drilled about 1,200 feet from the middle school where her son will go. She joined a lawsuit against the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission for giving the project a green light. In my mind, this would be open and shut. Like, nobody in their right mind would put an industrial site next to a school. The lawsuit claimed that allowing extraction oil and gas to drill the wells near Bella Romero was unfair and an example of environmental racism. The wells were originally planned to go behind another school a few miles away, Frontier Academy. 85% of Bella Romero students qualify for free or reduced lunch, compared to 19% at Frontier, a mostly white school. The majority of our students are Latinx. A lot of them are children of refugees or refugees themselves, and we have a lot of families that are mixed-status households. After angry Frontier parents pushed back against the project, it was moved to Bella Romero. In a statement, extraction spokesperson Brian Kane said the Bella Romero location was the best option as an alternative site because it let them use pipelines instead of trucks to haul away oil and gas, which reduces emissions. The lawsuit lost in district and appeals court, and the wells started flowing in October 2019. A few weeks later, a state mobile lab stationed at the school detected an elevated level of benzene, a common byproduct of oil and gas development. The invisible and odorless chemical hung in the air as the final bell rang, and kids ran out to meet parents and board buses. This is exactly what we were afraid of, that the children were going to be exposed to carcinogens. The public learned about the incident three weeks later, when the state put out a press release with the details. On November 5, 2019, the mobile lab detected benzene levels that exceeded federal health guidelines. The health department does not believe that anyone was harmed in the incident. They say the benzene exposure was lower than the level known to cause headaches, skin and eye irritation, and respiratory issues. The state determined the benzene likely came from an oil and gas operation, but their investigation couldn't make a conclusion as to its exact source. Christy Richardson is the state toxicologist. She said extractions wells are the closest active site to the school, but that there are a lot of other operations in the area, other oil and gas production facilities, other older wells that are being basically closed up. Extraction is adamant they were not the source. Kane said they scoured the facility, its data, and operations logs. Based on all of the puzzle pieces that we put together, and based on the reams of data that we were able to get from our facility and analyze, we are confident in saying we don't believe that this came from our facility. But without a definitive answer as to what caused the benzene spike, parents and staff of Bella Romero are left with their concerns and a still pumping site right next to the school. They're worried more toxic chemicals could be in the air and that leaks will go unknown or unresolved. They don't trust that their kids are safe. In her most recent attempt to shut down the wells, Nelson submitted a petition of about 1,000 signatures to Governor Jared Polis, which demands that he do just that. She says she's heard from parents privately about their concerns, but no one else is speaking out publicly. I know a lot of families that aren't as privileged as I am. Despite being a woman of color in the United States, I'm an American citizen, so I can speak my mind without being afraid of repercussions. CPR News interviewed parents and a Bella Romero staff member who signed Nelson's petition. 
They spoke on the condition of anonymity because they feared retribution, and CPR verified their identities. The staff member feels the development is an injustice to the community. She's also worried about her own exposure. She'd like to eventually have children, and studies have found associations between adverse birth outcomes for pregnant women living near oil and gas development. Two mothers of Bella Romero Middle School students say they feel like extraction, the state, and the school have kept them in the dark. They have reasons to doubt that they're getting accurate information about the operation. Extraction told the school that flowback would be done during the summer of 2019. So the school sent out a note to parents, reassuring them that the phase when emissions are found to be generally higher wouldn't be happening when kids were in class. But that didn't end up being the case. A hybrid phase of flowback and oil and gas production didn't start until mid-October. The company adopted updated flowback technology to reduce emissions. Kane said that this newer technology blurs the lines, and so they didn't pinpoint when flowback ended and production started. He says there's no difference in safety in these phases. We had a completely closed loop flowback process, which is, it's, it's not just unique, it's groundbreaking for our industry. And so we had everything that came out of the well staying in a pipeline and going straight down the line. While the technology might be advanced, it can still malfunction. CPR News learned that a gas leak was detected in extraction's equipment the day before the elevated benzene reading. Extraction fixed the leak in the days after and concluded it was too small to be the source of the benzene. Kane said for context, the state allows operators five days to fix leaks of that size. The state agreed with this assessment based on what they were told about the leak in question. This doesn't sit well with Nelson. To know that there was a gas leak and they knew about it, and they didn't evacuate our kids. I mean, it's just cruel at this point. Nelson believes extraction should be required to share specific information about any gas leak, no matter the size. And she would like to know how many other leaks have been detected at the site. But that's information she likely won't get. Companies aren't required to report on individual leaks, just a summary of how many leaks were detected and fixed within a year. In 2018, Extraction reported more than 3,000 leaks in its operations across Colorado. The state wants to strengthen their leak detection abilities, but said it's not realistic to report the details of each and every one. In 2018, they identified nearly 24,000 of them. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission said that with last year's passage of Senate Bill 181, which makes health and safety higher priorities when considering oil and gas regulation, it likely wouldn't have approved extraction's permits to drill behind Bella Romero if it was a question today. But that doesn't change the reality for Nelson and her son. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what is lost when a beloved restaurant serves its last meal. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Restaurants around the state are closing permanently, largely because of the pandemic. And the latest survey from the Colorado Restaurant Association shows 62 percent of restaurants may shutter in the next six months. Racines, a Denver institution, already has. It's where power brokers used to dine blocks from the state capitol and where friends enjoyed a lingering brunch. Meanwhile, SLV Pizza in Alamosa tossed its last crust. No, we can't live without your pizza, one customer posted to social media. Against that backdrop, we invited Denver restaurant promoter and former restaurateur John Imbergamo to join our series, The Kitchen Shelf, where we dust off old cookbooks and bring the recipes back to life. And John, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. You brought a cookbook from 1982, recipes from some of Colorado's poshest places at the time. Uh, Most of them, I guess, are no longer around. You know, there's 71 Denver restaurants listed in this book called The Best of Colorado's Gourmet Gold, and 10 of them are still around. And I guess I'm more surprised that there are 10 that are still around than, huh. than the opposite of that. So The Best of Colorado's Gourmet Gold. Yes. I wonder if you look back at that cookbook and think, gosh... Denver, Colorado, we were just less sophisticated then, you know? There's always been this wrestling with the Cowtown image. What do you feel when you look back? One of the things that drives me crazy these days is when people say, well, isn't it great that we finally have some good restaurants in Denver? You know, in in 1982, we had a restaurant that I was involved with called Cafe Giovanni that was named one of Esquire's 80 best new restaurants in America. And We might not have had the number or the depth Mm. back then, the depth in terms of cuisines, but we certainly had some great restaurants and places like Dudley's and Cafe Giovanni's and Cliff Young's and Hudson's, places like that were all spectacular restaurants. Describe the retro cover of this cookbook. I mean, when I saw it, it made me want to put on shoulder pads, John. (laughs) As if you're not wearing them. Um, (laughs) You know, it's a uh, a shot from Sims Landing, a restaurant long gone, that was high atop a hill at Sixth and Sims in Lakewood, and there's a an array of food that probably hasn't been served for 15 years um, with a an overlook onto the city. Yeah, in the background is the cityscape, and in the foreground, my goodness, it looks like maybe prime rib and a strawberry cake and croissants and an ice sculpture. Before we dive into some of the restaurants and some of your specific memories, John, I guess I'd like to have you reflect on this moment for restaurants. Do you think this is the toughest time they've faced? Well, there's simply no doubt. In the world of restaurants, we have never been universally closed for as long as we were closed. And the opening of restaurants at 50% capacity has been the beginnings of a comeback, but essentially restaurants can't operate profitably at 50% capacity. And the thing that's in everyone's mind is what's going to happen come fall and winter when the outdoor patios that have been expanded can no longer be used. Mm. And we are scared to death about what's going to happen in uh, October, November, December. Of course, we know that the owners of Racine's, whom you represent in Denver, 
they just didn't see a path forward. And so they had already planned to close, but are doing so much earlier as a result of the pandemic. Could you describe what happens when an institution closes? Like, what is the effect on the market? Is that a natural part of the rhythm that you expect or what? Well, nothing is natural (laughs) during this time, um, for sure. The calculation that Lee Goodfriend and David Racine had to make was completely different than the average restaurateur is making because they had an end date of January 15th, 2021, and decided that opening in the interim just didn't make sense for them, mostly in terms of their health. They're both 70 years old and decided that it wasn't it wasn't worth it to reopen. They were concerned in light of the pandemic about exposing themselves, huh? Exactly, exactly right. You asked about what happens when an institution closes. You know, the the fact is that there are plenty of restaurants. (laughs) You know, we have way more seats out there at the moment than we have asses to put in those seats. And (laughs) I don't know if you can say that. You can say that. um, (laughs) I don't hear it every day, but you can say it. But what you lose when a restaurant like Racine's closes is the community that Racine's was a part of. They created a community. I'm going to take a moment and read a comment that Patty Calhoun at Westward got when she announced that Racine's was closed. It's just exactly what Racine's meant to people. My partner and I met a young woman at Racine's on Spear in the fall of 1991 She came to interview us as potential parents for the baby she was expecting. She was interested in us because gays and lesbians had a harder time adopting a baby at that time. She indicated she liked our energy. With a three-by-five note card in hand, she asked us thoughtful questions about our relationship, our parenting styles, and our philosophy of life. We also asked a few questions, and after our nutty cheese salad, Santa Fe grill sandwich, and hamburger, We agreed we would continue our discussion. Depending on a meeting with her parents and their approval, she would place her baby with us. On March 4th, 1992, we were in the hospital room and participated in the birth of our son, Tim. We are still in contact with his birth mom and so grateful to her. I've had many breakfasts, lunches, and dinners at Racine's over the years, some ordinary and some celebratory, some after a night at the bars and later with a squirmy toddler and his colors and placements. It just felt like home, but none more memorable than that booth where we found our son. Wow. (sighs) Adoptive parents. Yes. Meeting their child's biological mother at a restaurant. Well, this is in part why we asked you onto the program for our series, The Kitchen Shelf, and why we're highlighting this cookbook that is so filled with restaurants that have since closed and that to so many others represented that kind of sacred dining space. So you mentioned Cafe Giovanni. This was in Lodo before Lodo's Renaissance. This is pre-Ballpark, pre-Wincoop, which is the brewery that catapulted John Hickenlooper to fame. Describe Cafe Giovanni. So Cafe Giovanni, first of all, I was a partner at Cafe Giovanni, important to mention that. And, um, We opened in September of 1980. It was an upscale restaurant, very upscale restaurant. It was done mostly in greens, um, the color green everywhere. It seemed like we had the color green and green carpet. And we um, 
got many of the interior furnishings from a notorious Denver antique dealer who made a business in architectural antiques. And so all of these giant pieces of furniture and we had the walls from a a bank in London that he had saved. And and, um, so all kinds of, it was very, it was very classy place. You used the word elegant earlier. It was very elegant. And um, many of the dishes on the menu were things that just hadn't been served in Denver at that time. My partner, business partner, Jack Leone was the chef and we just were very different. It was also a very different time in Denver's history. The, the penny stock market was huge. And so there was a lot of money in and around Denver and the oil and gas business in 1982 was booming in Denver. And again, lots of money, lots of drinking wine at lunchtime and that kind of thing. So, I mean, this sounds like the set of Dynasty. (laughs) Possibly, possibly, although... We didn't have John Forsythe that I remember. Um. <laughs> you mentioned dishes that Denver had really not seen before on its menus. Did that include uh, the recipe in this book, Escargot Maison? So we had two different snail items on the menu, and they were both cooked in papayote in paper. So they were baked in, in a parchment paper, and they were monster sellers. And there probably were other restaurants serving escargot in Denver at the time. I can think of Cafe Promenade or, or some of these other places that were open at the time. But, but this one was different in that it was baked in parchment. Baked in parchment. And that's the recipe in the book? Yes. We'll have this recipe for escargot at CPR.org. I'm not sure, John, where today I would buy snails. I'm not sure where you got them back then. Well, snails come in a can. Interestingly enough, and they still come in a can. Um, Living are, or dead? <laughs> dead. Okay, just check. Dead, yeah, yeah. There are restaurants like Bistro Vendome and Larmer Square that serve snails in a much more traditional way, traditional French way, usually with garlic and butter in those little dishes with the indentations. But they, yeah, they come, French snails come in a can, always have you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is John Imbergamo, the former restaurateur turned restaurant promoter, and we've invited him to join us as part of The Kitchen Shelf, our series about delightful, delicious Colorado cookbooks. And he has chosen one called The Best of Colorado's Gourmet Gold. This is from 1982, Recipes from Colorado's Most Popular Restaurants at the Time. Okay, John, this next recipe is fascinating. It's from a breakfast place, the eggshell. And I think of all breakfast restaurants as kind of in vogue right now. I think of snooze and toast and jelly all in Metro Denver. But I understand that back then, something beyond the greasy spoon that had only breakfast, that was a new idea. This was a brand spanking new concept for Denver. It was first opened on Blake Street. Um, A guy named Buddy Waldman and his family opened the eggshell, and it was revolutionary at the time. They introduced skillets to the market, you know, a a pan with potatoes on the bottom and eggs on top in a variety of different ways, and they they just made it all the way across the country in, in a hurry. They were 
the predecessors to places like La Peep and Snooze and Toast and Jelly. And they ended up with three or four eggshells in town. And then um, the Waldman family kind of broke up and Buddy went on to, to found La Peep, which ended up um, in quite a few states across the country. So, From the eggshell, you highlight our chicken pesto frittata. We'll have that recipe as well at CPR.org. It's so funny. I always feel guilty when I eat eggs with chicken. It just seems too intergenerational. <laughs> I love pesto, and finding it at breakfast is such a delightful idea, chicken pesto frittata. I understand, though, John, you have a pesto story for us. Well, my business partner, Jack Leone, who was the chef at Cafe Giovanni, put pesto on the menu in, in 1980 at Cafe Giovanni, and, and no one really in Denver had ever heard of pesto. And he decided on his own that pesto was going to be too pungent, too strong for, <laughs> for Denver diners at the, at the time. So he made it into a cream sauce with pasta. And the biggest review you could get at that time was a magazine called Denver Magazine, not the last version of Denver Magazine, but a 1982 version of Denver Magazine. And um, the reviewer there was a fellow named Huntley Dent. He came in, had a great dinner, and the only thing he didn't like on our menu was the pesto cream sauce because he couldn't understand why we did, we, would, we would have done that to pesto, adding cream to it. So it was hilarious. It's such a great example of what happens in restaurants all the time as we try to outthink our customers. So. Let's wrap up with a dessert recipe from The Lotus Room. This is how to make your own fortune cookies. Five fairly straightforward ingredients. But first, what do you remember about The Lotus Room? So The Lotus Room was a Chinese restaurant housed in a VFW building <laughs> on Spear Boulevard in the Golden Triangle. Wow. And it, it had been there for years. And it's a very traditional Chinese restaurant and... I just remember going in there with a party of eight one night for dinner. And, you know, I typically go out to dinner either with press or with other restaurant people. And so everybody had, you know, substitutions and modifications and things like that. And everybody ordered a whole bunch of different items. And we were being waited on by an ancient Chinese man who wrote nothing down. <laughs> he simply listened to all of our convoluted orders. And in the world of restaurants, my rule would be that you can only do that if you're taking an order for two. <laughs> Any more than two and you have to write it down. That, yeah, I'm always be... <laughs> super wary when there's a server who doesn't write stuff down. Because I'm the person who says, no mayo and this on the side right, and this right. needs to be extra crispy. Uh-huh, okay. We had no hope that we were going to get the food that we had ordered. And um, the food came out. He delivered every item to the right person in the right order with the right modifications and substitutions. It was, it was beyond imaginable how he did that. Have you ever made your own fortune cookies? I never have. This is the opportunity to do so. It occurred to me, uh, reading the recipe, that the paper is stuffed into the cookie while it's still a bit soft. Duh. I don't know why that... that I, I always had an image of just shoving the paper into the slit when it was hardened, but that's... 
That might be a little tougher, but a little tougher. You know, unless you have teeny tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mentioned John the closure of Racines. I thought we might wrap up with a restaurant that's hanging in there that you'd like to give a shout out to, and maybe one that's not a client. <laughs> sure. You know, I will tell you that Saturday I picked up my farm box at Beast and Bottle on 17th Avenue in the Uptown neighborhood. And Beast and Bottle is run by the chef Paul Riley and his sister Aileen. During this whole thing, they have done a farm box program with Olin Farms out of Longmont. Just drive up in front of Beast and Bottle and pick it up. No, no contact, no hands. And um, the farm box is stuffed with all this great produce from Olin Farms. And um, this week there was golden zucchini in there. I've never seen golden zucchini and these beautiful Italian eggplants and a variety of other things. And they have just recently reopened for dinner with limited capacity. It's a teeny tiny restaurant. They've expanded out onto the patio with a few tables onto the patio. But they're a classic example of a restaurant that deserves everyone's attention either through in, in restaurant dining or through takeout. And um, they represent a lot of, of what's going on in the market today. Yes, the adapting to this new, weird normal. Exactly. Well, John, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for letting me share some memories. John Imbergamo, former restaurateur turned restaurant promoter. For our series, The Kitchen Shelf, he chose The Best of Colorado's Gourmet Gold, a cookbook from 1982. At CPR.org, you'll find recipes for escargot from Cafe Giovanni, that chicken pesto frittata from the eggshell, and homemade fortune cookies from the Lotus Room. If you have an old Colorado cookbook to share with us, email coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. We'd love to see a photo of the cover as well. And speaking of 1982 gems, we'll go to break with this. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. If I asked you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south. I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't. We did. And it's good to be the OG. (laughs) The fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south on the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Cobbler Tommy Ryan of Denver is busy, and he can feel it in his 70-year-old body. Well, it seemed like I had to get used to working again. <laughs> First couple of days when I was busy, yeah, I would feel it when I got off. My back's all stiff right now because I guess it just wasn't moving enough. When I walked into his shop, where every square inch is covered in either shoes or mementos, he was resoling a pair of turquoise flats. It's been a roller coaster ride for Ryan since he shared his story with me in June. People across the country stepped up when they learned this black businessman was struggling as his usual clientele disappeared. Downtown office workers who now stay home. Ever since you guys got me started with business coming in from all over the place, out of state, people that didn't know I was here, it's been a great deal. 
Customers have dug deep into their closets for shoes that could use some TLC. He's been asked to spiff up winter boots months ahead of time. A woman in North Carolina sent in shoes that seemed beyond repair. She said a couple of cobblers said they couldn't be fixed. And I said, I don't know. I was taught that anything can be fixed if people want to pay for it. So she said, I'm sending them in to your favorite pair of red boots. But it's not just footwear flowing in, it's cash, too. People set up online fundraisers for Ryan's cobbler shop. I would say it's close to 20 grand. What does that money do for you, Tommy? Oh, keep me in business a little while longer. Paid off some bills that I were behind in, you know. I was like four months behind in rent here. To some extent, is it a Band-Aid? Or is it, does it change your life? You know what I mean? I would say, you know, it's helping right now. Who knows how long this is going to go on, you know. And I don't know if I'll stay to the bitter end, but I'm going to try to stay as long as I can. For now, he's doing record business. Normally, this time of the year, when business is good, summer slows way down to nothing. And I've been, it's probably going to be a record-breaking summer for me for it's being busy. But just as a sense of relief was setting in, Tommy Ryan got terrible news. Uh, get over one hump, and my youngest son passed away. We really don't know what happened yet. You know, he was laying in bed like he went to bed and just didn't get up. He was going to be 32. Ryan tears up as he talks about Daniel. I asked how he's getting through each day. Trying to keep my mind, you know, off of it a little bit. It's still hard to believe that it's happened, but try to stay busy helps a little bit. And staying busy is now possible with all the repair work flowing in. How long do you want to keep working? How many years? Oh, as long as I can, as long as I'm healthy. I like doing this, you know, and I'd rather be working than just sitting home letting your mind play tricks on you. Before I go, I asked if there's anything else Ryan wants to share about the last month or so when he went from being on the brink to having hope for his shoe repair business. I got a letter yesterday from Hawaii, and a lady said the story touched her heart because she said her dad or somebody was a cobbler and said cobblers never made a lot of money, but they got big hearts. You know, you see the stuff like that, it makes you feel pretty good. Tommy Ryan, who's about to turn 71. He's the proprietor of Ryan's Cobbler Shop in Denver. You can imagine this would be a tough time to start a high-end clothing store. And yet, 26-year-old fashion designer Rebecca Moon is doing just that in downtown Colorado Springs. And we've been following her story. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce checked back in with her and found that her business venture requires more than one source of income. Tucked into a downtown alley is a stylish little bar. Think kind of a speakeasy vibe. I just popped into Shaming Regret to hang out with Rebecca while she's working her first shift back post-quarantine and all the COVID weird stuff. That's Rebecca Moon's boyfriend, David Frink. Rebecca was laid off from this bartending job in March when the state shut restaurants down. Now she's back working Mondays and Tuesdays. Which are kind of the bad money nights. I was going to say, like the slowest nights. <laughs> yeah, but my shop is open Wednesday through Saturday, and I like to have Sunday off with my boyfriend. So She says her store, Moonbeam Clothiers, has been doing 
okay, mostly, since its grand opening in June. Had a lot more foot traffic, a lot more people coming in. That waxes and wanes, however, so the bartending job and other custom sewing projects continue to pay the bulk of her expenses. Green tea shot and two Jamesons with a coat back. For now, her shifts at Shame and Regret are stable. It serves food and thus was able to stay open when Governor Polis reclosed bars a couple weeks ago. Though Rebecca admits business has been way down since the governor's additional ban on alcohol sales after 10 p.m. Her boyfriend, David, commiserates. So I'm the beverage director for three restaurants that opened in downtown Colorado Springs in December. A cocktail bar, a tapas bar, and a cafe. They shut down in March and reopened end of May. It's kind of crazy just because everything changes every day. The restaurants certainly were not designed to survive at 50% capacity, so David's trying to hustle and find new angles. We've got to start marketing ourselves as to-go cocktails, to-go bottles of wine, to-go whiskey pours to make this sustainable. Results have been mixed. David's not sure the restaurants will last a few more months under current rules. Meanwhile, Rebecca recently received some sobering news. Another female-owned clothing store on the same block as Moonbeam Clothiers just shut its doors for good. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. And finally today, our colleagues at Indy 1023 feature Colorado musicians each month in the local 303. And one of those artists is Michelle Rocket. She's a vocalist, a producer, and a beatboxer for Denver band The Milk Blossoms. I am a tightrope walker. I am a tightrope walker. Rocket now has her first solo single, a track called Interview. It was written to process all her, quote, crybaby feelings. Denver musician Michelle Rocket, a local 303 artist, for our colleagues at Indy 1023. This is CPR News.